Palm Sunday. You should probably show them. Yeah. We have palm branches. I don't know. Welcome to church, everybody. It's going to be hard to... Man, worship was great. I just want to keep on singing and playing. <laughs> ah, it's a good time. Easter, next weekend. Uh, so we've got regular service here at 1030. But if you're an early riser or if you would like, we're going to have sunrise service out at the Barry's house. It's uh, 1553 17 Road. If you would like to go out for that, 7 a.m. out at the Berry Patch, we will do a little sunrise service. They have a great fire pit in the backyard, and we'll gather around and worship. And that's just a great way to, to celebrate the risen morning. Had a food bank this weekend, over 200 families served. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're just, yeah. I, yeah. We are definitely uh, seeing the need in our community. And God, again, it, he just pours out. He pours out blessing to us. He pours out provision to us. And so we get a grocery store on Friday, and then we give it away on Saturday. And, yeah. It's not about the food. That's right. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, we, we've been, as, the, as it's been growing, we've been having this, like, now produce aisle that's developing at the back of the church. And it becomes this, so we've got, like, four pallets of produce and then a table and then, like, eight people bagging up produce. And there's probably a better way, but, oh, my, was it the Girl Scouts again? Yeah. Those little, oh my, they are such hard workers. Those little girls, they will work you into the ground. Yeah. So, yeah. We've got, uh, so we, like, we had a food bank this last weekend. We do have a Tuesday and Wednesday evening Bible studies at 6.30 here at the church. We've got Secret Church coming up on April 29th. And again, I know Miss uh, Rhonda has been talking about the last couple of weeks, but uh, David Platt, who's the, the teacher, um, it's, a, it's an online thing. We'll do it here at the church. We put it up on the big screens. Uh, we get tables and snacks. But what he discovered was when he was going on mission, what would happen is they were going to these places where the, where the gospel was not allowed, where it was illegal. So these people would get together whenever they had the opportunity, and they would have these intense marathon sessions of learning the Bible and not just learning it for themselves, but learning it so that they could go back to wherever they came from and to teach it. And he's like, man, this passion, this fervor for the word, this intense study time is, uh, is important. It's not something that we do regularly here in America. We are very blessed to be able to come to churches like this and to gather regularly out in the open to be able to sing loudly and rattle the windows of our neighbors. And so we wanted to take that spirit, that heart for the gospel, that heart for that intense study of the, the Bible, like I said, with the intent of being able not only to have it for yourself, but to be able to teach it. So that's on um, April 29th. It's a Friday. It is. It's, you know, from 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. It is a solid five hours of, of Bible study and prayer. It is so good, though. 
We've got uh, missions uh, will be coming back to us, so we'll be having our, our guest speakers rotating through from you know, all of the missions. We're getting those lined up, so just kind of keep that in the back of your mind that we'll be having those. Uh, Jesus with the skin on, we're still doing one for the, for the screen. So about halfway through the service, you'll see the projectiles will start overheating, and that's why we're looking to, to replace them. They are original to the building. When we, when we moved in here, we've done the bulbs and the filters and, and all of that, and it's just, it's just time. They've done their, their service for us, and it's just time to, uh, to get those replaced. So if you have anything extra above your regular giving that you can do, put that in the offering box at the back of the church. Um, if you're a guest, um, uh, just uh, please let us know. There's some prayer request uh, envelopes at the back there. If you want to fill one of those out with your information and put that in the offering box as well, we would love to, uh, to have your information and reach out to you. All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, have your word open in front of us. We are going to dive in on this wonderful Palm Sunday. Father, please open your heart and open your mind and open your wisdom to us that as we go through your word that we would be changed, that our minds and our hearts would be open, that what you need for us to know for this upcoming week, what you need for us to be prepared for, that we would receive that. We ask all of that in the name of your son, the great teacher. Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are Palm Sunday, and so we're in John chapter 12, and this is verses 12 through 19, and we are going to bounce back and forth, so we'll grab this from, uh, from Matthew and Luke as well, but we'll start off here in John, in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, and this section is titled, Jesus Comes to Jerusalem as King. It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come from for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. We'll talk about our, our setting first. So if we were to flip back, just scan up the page to, to John chapter 12, verses 1, it, 1 and 2, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, in Bethany, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. That's where they were, staying in Bethany. It's about two miles away from Jerusalem. And we know the day because of exactly what John says. It says it was six days before the Passover, and then John says the next day is when this triumphal entry happens. We celebrate as, a, as Palm Sunday, but most scholars now think that that was actually the Monday. Um, you know, John MacArthur is one of them, but they would say this actually is, a, is Palm Monday. That gets rid of the silent Wednesday, the Wednesday that we don't have any record of, if you were to do the reckoning that way with it being Palm Monday instead of Palm Sunday. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't change anything. 
but it just does, when we were talking about uh, the, the Passover meal being celebrated on Thursday night instead of Friday night, it reconciles with that a little bit better because as we're talking about that these guys were from Galilee. They were from Nazareth. They're from the northern part where they would have celebrated the Passover meal on Thursday night instead of on Friday night. And that's exactly what we see is they have the upper room dinner shortly in, their, in the gospel. So it was on Thursday night, and then he's arrested that evening and taken off for the events of the crucifixion that we will talk about next week. And again, it, uh, it doesn't change anything for us other than getting this kind of straight in our head as to the sequence of events. So we think, you know, they either arrived in Bethany on Saturday or on Friday. Uh, more than likely, they didn't travel on the Sabbath. That would have not been correct. So but more than likely, they traveled on Friday, and they, uh, then they would have arrived in Bethany, and then they would have... Um, They would have celebrated the Sabbath, then resumed their travel on Sunday. And like I say, again, it doesn't really change anything. It just means that their dinner, that dinner was Sunday night, and then they did this triumphal entry on Monday morning. So Sunday, they have the dinner in Jesus' honor, and then they make this Palm Monday entrance into Jerusalem. And this gets important here in just a moment. And this is true, by the way, whether this was in 30 or 33 AD, the calendars line up. Because it's important if Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Monday the 10th, before the 14th of Nisan, which would have been Passover. Because if we go to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, this is where we get this this next part. See, Monday was the day when all of the lambs were selected for the slaughter. That's when you would have taken your lamb to the temple and presented it to the priests, and they would have inspected it and said, yes. This lamb is clean, it is spotless, it is okay for you to use it as your Passover offering. And so on the same day that the uh, the lamb selection was going on is the day that Jesus is entering into the city. And so we find that in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Should have been about one lamb for about 10 people. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So just to say that the same time that Jesus is making this entry is the same day they are selecting the lambs for the slaughter on Friday. And we get this imagery in John chapter 1, verse 29, and John 1, 36, where it says flat out that Jesus is God's chosen lamb. That's what he's called, is God's chosen lamb. This timing also fulfills Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 26. It's the verse about the 77s. 
says, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. I want to highlight for a second right there that to seal up vision and prophecy that indicates the end, the end of those things. No one understand this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with the streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is exactly what happened. Jesus came, he was put to death, and then in 70 AD, the city was destroyed. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. It's exactly what happened. But that timing, the 77s, that 490 years, flies out specifically to 30 AD. Uh, you know, there's some variance in some of the, the, the scholars in their, in their math, but um, for it to be that Monday, the 10th, and, all, and to match what's there in Daniel, that's how that, that comes out. One of the records, when we look at the records of, of the Passover, uh, this was after Jesus, but before the destruction of the city, that they had slaughtered 250,000 lambs, which, you know, if there's one lamb for 10 people, that means there's about 2.5 million people in Jerusalem for Passover. Maybe not this Passover, but at least for the one that we have a record of. Remember that every adult male within 15 miles was required to come. So the point is to say that the city is packed, it is full. It is busting at the seams. It's gone from a, a city of about 200,000 people to a city of 2.5 million for this week of Passover. That's an incredible amount of people. So we think about this crowd that is gathering to wave these palm branches, to shout Hosanna in the highest. You just picture in your mind that crowd, how big that is, how massive it is. We're going to talk a little bit about geography next. So we've got a, a slideshow that we're going to put up here. So they're in Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem. So they're traveling west, and they stop in Bethpage, which is that little town right there, and then they come down. So Bethany, it means the house of poverty or house of the poor. Bethpage means the house of unripe figs. Bethany, the house of poor, house of poverty, and Bethpage means the house of unripe figs. If we were to compare... So like Bethlehem, that means house of bread, or Bethesda, which means house of mercy or house of flowing water, or Bethsaida, which is house of fish. This is Bethany, house of the poor, and then Bethpage, or home of unripe, unripe figs. And there are three peaks on the mountain range that the Mount of Olives, and it leads into the Kidron Valley, and you can see that there on the map. So you can see Mount Scopus to the north, Mount of Olives in the middle, and the Mount of Corruption, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, to the south. And so when we look at that, the path where they came from Bethany up and over the Mount of Olives and then down into the Kidron Valley, and then you can see the Dome of the Rock is the current uh, mosque that's on the Temple Mount, but that's where they would have gone to. Is they go right to the temple, and that's where Jesus drives out the money changers for the second time. The, the summit of, Mount of, of the Mount of Olives is 2684 feet. That's important. So the Mount of Scopus to the north is 2710. The, the uh, Mount of Corruption to the south is 2684 the reason that's important is that Jerusalem sits up. It's up on a hill. It would be like instead of Grand Junction being down here in the valley, if we had built it up on top of the mesa, it's 2,000 feet up. So if we were to look back in the story where they came through the ruins of Jericho and then go into Bethany and then climb up, they're climbing up almost 3,000 feet 
over those um, over that that journey of about 20 miles as they as they come up. And we're going to pause. And we're going to talk about the Mount of Corruption. Doesn't that grab your attention? That name, Mount of Corruption. Anybody heard that before? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing that that's there, isn't it? There's a story behind it, and it's in Second Kings, and we're going to be in Second Kings chapter 22. It's about King Josiah. King Josiah became king when he was eight years old. Just eight years old, he became king. And this is in Second uh, Kings 22, verse 1 through 2. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah, and she was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So Josiah is 26 when he begins rebuilding the temple. He orders that the taxes, the, the fees that are being collected at the temple, that they pay for the repairs of the temple. He does something interesting. He says that the workers there, they're good, trustworthy people. He says, just give them the money, they will do the work. He doesn't require an accounting back of the materials or of the labor. He says, no, no, these are my people, these are my trusted folks, just give them the money and they will do the work. Then something interesting happens. The high priest, going through there, they find the book of the law, and they send a copy of it to Josiah. So that's in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 11 through 13. It says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, um, uh, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary of Asiah, the king's attendant. Listen to verse 13. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in the book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. He heard the words of God. He was cut to the bone. And immediately he was led to action. And he said, oh my goodness, we have not been doing the right thing and we have got to fix it and we have got to fix it right away. So he tears his robes in grief and he is desperate to act. And so Josiah, he learns that there's a, a prophetess, Huldah, and that this Huldah, that she has some information about their disobedience and their idolatry. And she tells him that disaster is coming for Jerusalem. So this is uh, just moving down the, cha uh, the chapter, 2 Kings 22, verse 18 through 20. It says, Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, and that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. That's an interesting prediction from God, isn't it? I say, this is the power of a believer. One believer following the word of God says, disaster will not come during your lifetime. While you are here, you're going to keep my commands. You're going to do what I ask you to do. And because of that, you will die in peace. The disaster will not come during your lifetime. Notice he doesn't just breathe a sigh of relief and go, ha, ah, 
All right, sweet, party time. We can just kick back then. God said it's not going to happen. We have nothing else to do. Yeah, we're fine. He doesn't say that at all. Instead, his zeal for the word of the Lord is renewed. It's actually doubled. So instead, he goes to Jerusalem and says, man, we got to clean this place up. We have to. Disaster is coming. God has spoken. This is not good. So he goes there. And again, God gives Josiah assurance of a couple of things. He gives him, Josiah, assurance of, number one, his salvation. Isn't that beautiful? To get reassurance of salvation. And then he gives him the, that preserving power of one believer. I was thinking about Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, how that one believer, how one person who is earnestly seeking God can help a community. That's a message of hope, isn't it? When we live in a fallen world, when we live in a place that seems to be chasing after every kind of evil, that one believer, one person earnestly seeking God, one person with zeal for the Lord, one person can hold things together. But again, Josiah does not sit still. His zeal for God and for God's people and for the temple, he says, all right, I got to go there. And that gives us a bit of application, doesn't it? Because the temple is where now? It's inside us. God says that I will make my holy dwelling place with you. So when we talk about this zeal for the Lord and this zeal for God's righteousness and this zeal for the things of God, He's saying, this is about you. This is about your heart. This is about what's inside you and keeping it clean and keeping it pure and keeping it holy, just like I want the temple to be clean and pure and holy. So in 2 Kings chapter 23, it says, Then the king called together all of the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. Listen to what he did. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. He read the word. So the first thing he did was he read the word. This used to be the tradition. Think about when Moses came to, uh, to Israel. First thing he did before they, they, he didn't cross the Jordan, but he sat down, he read the law. First thing. Same thing with Joshua. First thing we're going to do, we're going to read the law. It's the first thing we do is we read it out loud. We gather all of the people together and we read the word. It's important. If there's one thing that we can do as a practical step to help our community, it is that. The first thing we should do before we start any project, before we start any endeavor, any mission, is to read the word, read it aloud, read it with the people. So he reads the words of the book and the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul. Sounds a lot like Matthew 22, doesn't it? Thus confirming the words of the covenant written in the book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So we're talking about Jesus coming as king. And we have this pattern that Josiah gives us. We can tear our robes in humility, repent in sackcloth and ashes, gather the people together, read the book of the covenant, renew our covenant, renew our commitment to the Lord, follow the Lord and keep his commands and statutes and decrees with what? With all of our heart and soul and mind. Then, then Josiah went about getting rid of the idols and false temples. So on the Mount of Corruption, there's a reason why it's called the Mount of Corruption. They had built all these altars and all these temples to all these false gods. 
It was just littered with them. They were sacrificing children up on these altars. There was altars to Baal. There was Asherah poles. There was all of this stuff on this mountain overlooking the temple. There was Asherah poles and, and idols to Baal inside the temple. So 2 Kings 23, 13 through 15 says, The king also went to the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption. The one Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtaroth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the vile god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the people of Ammon. Josiah smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles and covered the sites with human bones. Even the altar at Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin, even that altar and high place he demolished. He burned the high place and ground it to powder and burned the Asherah pole also. And to this day, it's called the Mount of Corruption. There's houses there. If you looked on the, the pictures in the slideshow, it's a neighborhood. Where do you live, Mount of Corruption? How about you? wonder what the HOA is like. <laughs> but listen to what Josiah did. He tore his robes in humility. He repented Then he gathered the people together. He read the book. He renewed his commitment. And we renew our commitment to follow the Lord, to keep his commands, his statutes, decrees, with all of our heart and all of our soul and with all of our might. And then commit ourselves to get rid of all the idols and the false temples. That's a hard picture in our world today, isn't it? It's also hard when we see how intolerant our ancestors were of sin and of corruption the zeal that they had for the purity of of God, the the, the zeal that they had for the righteousness of God. We're very much so a live and let live society. We're very much so a, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin kind of group. We say that all the time. We don't necessarily have this zeal, this passion, this fire for the righteousness of God, but that's not the biblical example that we get. So here we are. Jesus comes from Bethany. And he goes up over the Mount of Olives in the middle with Mount of Corruption to the south and Mount Scopus to the north. And we have to remember, again, that Jerusalem is up. It's elevated. It's about 2,400 average feet throughout the whole city level. And the Temple Mount is actually above that. So you don't actually get to see the city until you summit the Mount of Olives and start to come down like you're heading down into the Kidron Valley. So it's the steady climb up from the, the Jordan River Valley and the ruins from the ruins of Jericho, to Bethany, through Bethpage, to Jerusalem. And then once you start that descent, once you cross cross the Mount of Olives and you start to break over, that is when you get to see the city. And if we flip over to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, we're just reading the exact same thing, this triumphal entry. So as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus did what? He sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once... You will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. He's quoting from Zechariah 9.9 right there. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus. So we're going to talk about this donkey. Let's look real quick like at the differences over in Luke. And the only reason we want to grab this is just because there's a couple other details that Luke gives us that aren't in there. It says, 
As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, logically, Why are you taking our colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. In verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. So we're going to talk about this dog, donkey for a minute, but we want to talk about it in the context of what it is, which is prophecy, that is omniscience, seeing the future, and purpose. So this donkey represents some things. So we're going to look at prophecy, and we're going to look at purpose. So Jesus gives the disciples exact details and it really does is a display of God's power, of God's omniscience, his all-knowing. It says, go to Bethpage, this little hamlet. There you will find a donkey and its mother. And you need both of them because an unridden colt will follow its mother. So you need both of them. It hasn't been trained. It hasn't been broken. No one's ever been on it before. So for this to work, you need the mom. That way, the colt will follow. You lead the mom, the colt will follow. And it's interesting that no one had ridden it. But Jesus knew the donkey would be there, the colt would be there, the owners, and that others would be there. And Jesus also knew that somehow these people knew. Maybe they were believers, maybe they were followers, maybe they were fans, we don't really know. We don't get to meet them. But he knew that if you say to them, hey, just tell them that I need it. I'm going to borrow it for a minute. They're going to be fine with that. Hmm. Don't see that happening a lot anymore. We'll get to that in just a minute. But... So Jesus also knew that if Peter and John told him it was for the Lord, that they would let it, them take it. So when we talk about prophecy, when we talk about God predicting the future, sometimes it fades into the background. Sometimes we, you know, right? We hear it so often. We hear, you know, God does this all the time. It's kind of usual for him to tell us what's coming in the future. But that's not really the way that our world works. Most of us are surprised moment to moment. And there are over 150 direct prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ. And we're just going to take a, a brief survey. This is not comprehensive by any means, but think about these things that were outside of Jesus' control. He was Jewish. That's in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 and 22, 18. He was of the house and the line of David. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 13. He was born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, spend time in Egypt, Hosea 1, 1, but live in Nazareth and be called a Nazarene. That's in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. He would be preceded by a prophet in the spirit of Elijah, and that's Isaiah 43 and Malachi 4, 5 through 6. But just try this one. Just try the donkey. See if you could go do this. If you want to say, ah, you know, I don't believe this is, you know, I don't believe this prophecy stuff. I don't believe this power of God stuff. I don't think this is true. I'd double dog dare you. Walk around, see if you can find a donkey and its colt, unridden, and see if you say to the people, the Lord needs it, if they'll let you borrow it. <laughs> see if you can do it. Anyone? Anyone taking bets? Anyone taking bets as to whether or not this you could do today? That you could walk up. Anybody who's just saying, man, I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't think, you know, any of this stuff. Try and do this one thing. Try and do this one part. Just the thing with the donkey. It's very practical. You just got to borrow it for a couple of hours just for a quick walk, two miles. That's all you got to do. 
hopefully that gives us a picture of God's power, of his omniscience. That here we have this donkey and this colt tied up together, and the colt must never have been ridden, and the owners must be home. And you have to tell them you are borrowing the donkey and the colt for God, and the owners must agree. We're going to talk about the crucifixion real quick, like things that were outside of Jesus' control. Remember that when these prophecies were written, crucifixion had not been put widely into use. It was not put widely into use until 519 by the Persians. They would be betrayed in Psalm 41.9 and Zechariah 11.12-13. There's no way Jesus could have controlled that. That the blood money, the money used to pay for his death, would be used to buy the potter's field. Jesus had absolutely nothing to do with that. Completely out of his control. He was on the cross when that money was thrown back into the temple and then used to buy the potter's field. No control over it. Unless, of course, he's God. That he would be spat on and struck in Isaiah 56, that he would be crucified with criminals, Isaiah 53, 12, that he would be given wine mixed with gall, that's in Psalm 69, that he would be pierced hand and foot in Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12, 10, that they would cast lots for his clothes in Psalm 22, 18, that his side would be pierced, and that's in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, 9. Do you see God's omniscience? Do you see God's power over this whole thing? How each one of these was fulfilled. And there's really no other way to explain it. There's really no other way that you can look at everything that happened, factually recorded by independent witnesses, not Christians. You can go and read Tacitus. You can go read Josephus and read these events as recorded by Roman historians, historians that were decidedly anti-Christian recording the events of the crucifixion as accurately recorded in the Bible, as accurately portrayed. All of these events that were predicted in the Bible and then fulfilled in Jesus, there's really not another way to explain it other than the power of God. So one of the authenticators of Jesus as the Messiah is prophecy, is God telling us the future. One of the authenticators of Jesus as the Messiah is the miracles. There's God's power and glory displayed in Christ. We just were talking about the raising of Lazarus. On the way through the the ruins of Jericho, he heals a couple of blind people. And then one of the authenticators is the teachings. You cannot hear the words of Christ and remain unmoved. You can't. That's exactly what we're talking about with Josiah. Reading the word has power. So let's get back on our donkey. So we've talked about our donkey as prophecy. We've talked about it as a prediction of of God's power and all of those things. Now we're going to talk about the meaning, what it means, why Jesus rode a donkey, and why a king would enter a city riding a donkey. First of all, there's some tradition. Both David and Solomon rode mules. Solomon rode one to his coronation. This is in 1 Kings 1.33. King David said, Colin Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiadiah. When they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. It's a king entering a city. Notice his army, though. 
these 12 ragtag disciples and one of them will betray him. And then you have this crowd, these people that have come. So they had this crowd that gathered in Bethany that heard about Jesus, that were excited about the raising of Lazarus and heard about that side. And then you have the other side that we read about, the side coming from Jerusalem. We have these throngs of people. And here Jesus comes riding in on a donkey on purpose. Why? Kings would do this when they came in peace. He didn't come in war. He didn't come armored for war. He didn't come armored to conquer the city or to fight with anyone. He came lowly, riding the colt of a donkey, not wearing armor at all, with an army of 12 ragtag disciples, because he came in peace. Contrast that. Think about this differently. If he had a war horse, if he had armor, if he had sword, a good example is our president. Our president wears a suit for a reason. He does not wear a military uniform because our president comes in peace. Even the guys that have served in the military who have earned the honors do not wear the uniform in office. Why? Because we come in peace. That is a symbol that we put forward. So Jesus rides in to this parade, and then he goes to the temple, and he drives out the merchants and the money changers right at the peak time. So we've got these religious leaders that are walking this line between the crowd and Jesus and the Romans. And they try several times to trip up Jesus, to get him to break the law in front of the crowd and his followers, but he doesn't. Instead, Jesus uses John the Baptist to challenge them. And when that doesn't work, they bribe Judas and plan to arrest him away from the crowds. There's some different agendas that are going to collide. We have Pontius Pilate who wants to keep his power. We have the religious rulers who want to keep their power then we have the vendors and the money changers who are losing their position. In the middle of this, a king comes lowly and riding on a donkey, not to conquer, not to defeat, not to overthrow. He comes in peace to all of those people, all of them, from the Romans and Pilate to the religious leaders to the money changers and the lenders to the regular people that have come out to celebrate. Every single one of them he is coming in peace too. He is saying, I come in peace. Come, meet me. Make treaty with me. Let's join together. Let's lay down our arms. Let's have a family. Let's have a nation together. Jesus didn't come to fight. He didn't come to fight with them. He didn't come to fight with you. He comes to you in peace, in humility. He came to serve. It challenges us, doesn't it? It challenges us to put down our armor, to put down our weapons, to put down our angry thoughts, doesn't it? To somehow try and meet him in peace. Because here's the thing, is it won't always be this way. There will be a time when Christ will not be coming lowly and on a donkey. He will not come in peace. He will not be coming to beg and plead with us. He will no longer be seeking your salvation. The time for that will have passed. And then go to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 21. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. 
The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, have horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the east of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Next time he comes, it won't be lowly and riding on a donkey. So our time to make peace is now. But the takeaway is that his kingdom is everything. His kingdom is everywhere. His subjects are everyone. The Romans, the Jews, the Gentiles, even the Sadducees and the Pharisees, from Judas who will betray him to the criminals on the cross hanging next to him. Every one of them are his people and his subjects. And he came in peace and humility to seek and to serve and to save each and every one of them. So this should be our reaction. We're going to go to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And we're going to specifically going to go to, to 31 and 33, but we'll read the whole thing. It says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, the person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or verse 31, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So the application for the donkey is simple. We can see the king coming. He is far off. We know it is the king. The prophecies testify, the miracles testify, the teachings testify, this is the Messiah. This is the king, the priest. This is the Lord of Lords, the king of kings, the great physician. So now's the time to count the cost. Now is the time to take stock. Can you oppose him? Can you? Can you stand? When he comes on his white horse, can you stand or will you fall? Because if you can't, now's the time to make peace. Now is the time to reach out for diplomacy before it's too late. So how is he greeted as Jesus comes in on this donkey in this place? He receives this pilgrim's greeting, but it's a greeting with expectation. Psalm 118 through 25 through 26 says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. They cry, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
Hosanna means save now. It's a cry for help. It's a cry for deliverance. And how did Jesus answer? It's interesting that Jesus didn't answer, isn't it? Because he knows their hearts. He knows what's going on. He knows that in just a few short days that they're going to turn on him and cry for his death. The problem is expectation, isn't it? The problem is that Jesus does not do what they expect him to. After he drives out the bad people from the temple, he goes to healing and to teaching, not to driving the Romans from the city. He doesn't coronate the high priest. He doesn't gather an army and start a revolution. So suddenly their cries of, of Hosanna, their cries of justice and mercy and healing, suddenly they go, man, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. You didn't give me the change that, that I wanted you to do. I expected you to fix all of this. And instead you told me to change. So you just go to the cross. That's what they say to him. A lot of times we long for this day when Jesus comes back because we each have an expectation of what it's going to be like. But we need to think about this part right here. How do we react when Jesus instead says, I came for you. You have to take me as Lord and Savior. You have to have faith. You have to have a changed heart. I came in peace, but you have got to accept me as king. So as they enter Jerusalem, the crowd that learned Jesus was in Bethany forms to welcome him. They lay their cloaks and, on, the, on the road and they wave the palm branches and they shout, Hosanna, save us, save now. It's in uh, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, we get this pattern. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and shouted, Yehu is king. First Maccabees 13, 51 is not in your Bible, but gives us this thing about the palm branch. It says, On the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches, with the harps and cymbals and string instruments and with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. John MacArthur calls this the false ordination of the true king. So this crowd gathers together and they're waving their palm branches and throwing their cloaks on the road and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's tough not to do this sometimes, isn't it? To idolize people, to put them on pedestals. Think about famous folks, whoever it is. In Jesus' case, though, it's the right thing to do. Jesus is the only one who is appropriate, that the worship is appropriate. And that's what makes this section so uncomfortable because Jesus is the rightful king. He is worthy of all praise. The problem is these folks are fans. They're not followers. One moment they're laying down their cloaks and waving palm branches. The next moment they are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So in prophecy and power and to shouts of Hosanna, Jesus enters Jerusalem. In the tradition of kings of peace, like Solomon rode to his coronation, Jesus enters the city and heads towards the temple. Notice that Jesus allowed it. This is the first time. It's the first time that he allows these crowds to gather. It's the first time that he allows these praises to come out. If we were to Flip over to John chapter 6, 14. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. This is a major difference. 
It says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Yay! And then Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, wait a minute, he's the rightful king. But what did he do? He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Didn't allow it. He said, no, that was not the time. That's not part of the plan. Nope, that was not it. Flip forward to John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. His brothers come to him and go, man, you're doing all these great things. We can make you famous. Let's go on tour. Let's go to Jerusalem. The festival's going to happen. Man, we can kick this thing off. We can get your tour going, get some posters, and get you on Spotify. This is going to be great. It says, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Why are you acting in secret? Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. But listen to what's in their heart. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to the festival because why? My time has not yet fully come. And after this, he stayed in Galilee. But now, now the time has come. Finally, it's time. Finally, the crowd gets to to shout. They get to wave the palm branches. They get to shout and sing and give a false coronation to the true king. But God has opened the door and it cannot be shut. So if we flipped over to Luke chapter 19, verse 39 through 40, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. This is the time. This is the time for celebration. This is the time for shouting. Because the next time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it will be the end times. See, Jesus will rise from the grave. He will spend some time with his friends, and then he's going to ascend to heaven. The next time that we see him, he will be coming on the clouds. It will be horses and swords and armor, not donkeys and cloaks and palm branches. But the cries will be the same, won't they? Hosanna, save now, save us now. His name is Yeshua. We translate it to, to Joshua. That word, it means Savior. We say, Jesus Christo, Jesus Christ. That means Joshua, Savior, Messiah. That's what we're saying. And it becomes this bittersweet moment, doesn't it? So on this Palm Sunday, this king and priest, the Savior Messiah, the Son of God, has come to his holy city, to the city promised to Abraham all those years ago. The cheers, the celebration, the shouting, they sort of ring hollow, don't they, in the shadow of the cross? It's bittersweet because we know that betrayal is coming, but so is victory. Pain is coming, but so is mercy and forgiveness. A showdown with death is coming, but death will lose. The tragedy is the people. The people who are doing the right thing, but have unchanged hearts. And it leads Jesus to weep over Jerusalem and the people. It's in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. He says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And that is the tragic fate of those who do not recognize God's coming. Dashed to the ground, broken, not one stone left on another. And that's prophecy, by the way. So in 70 AD, when the Roman army under Tacitus, they come and they destroy the city, this is exactly what they do. They encircle the city. Remember, it's up on a hill. So they have to go to a hill about the same level. There's actually seven mountains that are right there. And they go to this one opposite. So they encircle the city. They go to this one opposite, and they wait until the Sabbath day because the archers up on the the walls of Jerusalem would not fight on the Sabbath day. So they wait until the Sabbath day, and then they build their siege ram to be able to, to mount the walls. And then they take the city, and they burn it. They burn the whole thing. They burn the whole city to the ground. This says, you have to think about that. This is, um, this is Herod's temple. So in the old temple, and this is before Herod did the remodel and expanded it out, there were over 4,000 tons of gold and over 40,000 tons of silver in the old temple. It was either doubled or tripled under Herod, depending on, on your math. You didn't think about how much gold and silver that was. They had these hand-carved cedar panels. They went up to Lebanon, took these, these hand-carved cedar panels, and then they laid them over with gold leaf. And that's what, that's what the walls of the temple were covered in. This is a 15-story building covered in hand-carved cedar panels overlaid with gold leaf, set to fire. It said that there were rivers of gold and silver running through the cracks in the rocks. If you're a Roman soldier, you got to keep the plunder. So the soldiers worked together in teams, taking every single stone apart, laying the whole thing to waste to get at that gold and silver that had run into the cracks of the stones. Not one stone was left on another. And it's important to note that this isn't like a curse. Jesus isn't cursing Jerusalem. He's just saying this is what's going to happen. This is because of what's in your heart, because of this is the consequence. This is the natural consequence to your disobedience. Eventually, this is what is going to happen. It isn't revenge. He's heartbroken. He's weeping over these people. Matthew 23, 37 through 39 says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's crying over them, weeping over them. They're his children, they're his subjects, they're his family. And their disobedience is going to lead to their destruction. So we have looked at um, the journey from the ruins of Jericho. We looked at uh, the, briefly at the dinner in Bethany from the donkey in Bethpage to the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Corruption. We looked at prophecy and how it was fulfilled in Christ. We have looked at how Jesus came in peace. We talked about the purpose. We talked about the reaction of the people, how their cries of Hosanna were not the cries of a repentant people, not cries of a changed heart and a longing for God. They were superficial cries of fans who will turn on Jesus in just a few days. We talked about the fate of Jerusalem and how brokenhearted Jesus is and was over his beloved people. 
And so our example, again, is, is King Josiah. This is our takeaway. This is where we should be for today. That is to tear our robes in humility, to repent in sackcloth and ashes, to gather the people together, to read the book, and then renew our covenant to follow the Lord, to keep his commands, his statutes and decrees with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. And then the great part about that is we get to celebrate. Next week, we get to celebrate. We get a party like there's no tomorrow. And when we celebrate, it's not going to be like these guys. It's not going to be shallow and half-hearted and bittersweet. We get to celebrate with the pure joy of a saved people who get to be criers for God, who have the opportunity to partner with God in his works in this world. Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another beautiful Sunday. Thank you for where we live in western Colorado. Father, we are truly blessed. Father, we pray for rain as we come into springtime. Lord, we need the moisture. We need it in the mountains. We need it all over. So we pray for your rain to come on a dry and thirsty land. Father, we are, we are thankful that you sent your son. We are thankful for the rightful king. Father, today we lay our lives before you. We know that we are not worthy. So please, Lord, blot out our iniquities, blot out our sins, wash us, make us new today. Wash our feet that we could enter into this week renewed and refreshed and ready. Father, put your words on our lips, put your name on our hearts that the suffering people would get to see you and get to know you. Father, we have, we have folks that are hurting. We have folks that are fighting cancer, that are going for surgery, that are they're going through it. And Lord, we, we lift them up. You are the great physician. And we know that sometimes you choose to partner with human hands, but we also know that you can heal. So we just ask that your will be done, that you would be glorified. I speak the name of Jesus over you. In your hurting, in your sorrow, I will ask my God to move. Father, we lift up our children to you. We lift them up to you for protection, for guidance, for, for light, for straight and narrow paths, for blessing. We just ask that you uh, cover them in front and behind and to their right and to their left, that you would guard their every step. Father, again, we, we just lift up our lives to you for this upcoming week, that at the end of this week, that we would be glorified, that we could sit down with you and that you would be pleased. So we ask all of you. You call me out upon the wall.